If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, we're going to pick up in verse 13. We're going to work our way down through verse 28. we got a lot to cover this morning. Um, I uh, thought many times this week, uh, why in the world did I choose to go through this many verses? Um, we could probably have four sermons out of these verses that are contained here. So we might be here till noon or, well, we'll definitely be here till noon. Uh, I told the first service we'd be here till noon. We got them out on time. So hopefully it'll be all right for you. Faith, uh, this week we were walking and I was telling her about having trouble figuring out how I'm going to fit all this in. She said, why in the world did you pick that many verses? I said, well, we don't start making some ground. We're going to be in Matthew for the next five years. At some point, we got to we got to take some ground and, and start moving. But these verses, I really do uh, feel like they fit together really well. Um, this is uh, the crescendo of the book. This is the centerpiece. This is the watershed moment of the book of Matthew. In fact, if you look at the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this sequence of events occurs exactly the same in each one of those gospels. And, and in all of these synoptics, this is the centerpiece. This is the focal point. There's something here um, that, that Christ doesn't want us to miss. There's some keys here uh, to understanding who Jesus is and who the church is and what it means to follow him that we can't afford to be fuzzy on. We, we gotta be clear about what Christ has called us to do and who he is. So as we look at this text this morning, before we begin, we, we wanna go to the Lord right now and just ask. We know this, don't we, that apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. I'm going to tell you, as I've studied these verses this week, I come with great fear and trepidation. I don't want to say anything that's not God's word this morning. So would you just go to the Lord with me and let's implore him that he would speak to us through his word this morning. Fathers, we pause this morning. Um, this is not... A ritualistic prayer, this is not um, just a tip of the hat. We pause because we need you. I need you. Lord, we pause because we know as we stand before your word and we all open it together as your body, we know this is a sacred moment. This is no ordinary book, this is your living word. So God, I pray that in no way that, that I would stand in the way of what you'd have to say this morning, but your word would be clear. Lord, we're asking you to speak to us. Show us who you are. Let us see your glory. Let us see what it means to follow you and to be your disciple. God, we thank you for grace that you would reveal yourself to sinners such as us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we pick up in verse 13, we see Jesus again finding a spot of retreat. And Jesus was, as at this point, really uh, seeking moments when he could get away with his disciples and really pour into them. We're less than a year now away from the cross, and Jesus is going to hand off the 
ministry to these guys and he's pouring into them. So he goes to this region of Caesarea Philippi. He went to Tyre and Sidon, which is on the Mediterranean coast. He went back to the Sea of Galilee to Magadan. And now he goes up uh, to the northernmost part uh, of Israel. When in the Old Testament it talks about the, the whole of the nation of Israel, it often talked from Dan to Beersheba. Dan in the north, Beersheba in the south. And so there's Dan and Caesarea Philippi is really close to Dan. It's right at the base of Mount Hermon. And if you've been there, if you've seen it, you know it's a beautiful spot. What a beautiful place for Jesus to kind of retreat with his guys. And he's, as he's sitting there, he begins to just kind of pull them. What's the, what's the word on the street? So look at, look at verse 13. It says, when, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So what, what, what's, the, what's the word on the street, guys? I mean, the, the, Jesus has done, at this point, he's done some incredible miracles. He's demonstrated his power in some amazing ways. And so, so he's asking, what, what are people now saying? What, what's, what's the word on the street? Then look at verse 14. And they said to him, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, this is a pretty, pretty amazing group of people that they've just mentioned here. I mean, for any of us to even be mentioned in the same breath as, as any of these guys would have been absolutely remarkable. And what's even more interesting than this is, is if they're indicating that Jesus is one of these people, there's an idea that these people have been raised from the dead. So there's an understanding, at least with Jesus, they've seen enough of his ministry, those who are around, to understand that this is no ordinary individual. That this man is supernatural, that he, he, there's something about this guy that he's not just an ordinary guy, he's somebody very, very special. But Jesus won't leave it there, he won't just leave it at a place of him being supernatural, and he won't just leave it as a general question, he's always going to move to the personal. And so look at what he says in, in verse 15, but he said to them, but who do you say that I am? It's good to know, I don't know about you, what other people think of you, but what really matters to me is what do the people who are closest to me think about me? What do they think about me? So yeah, it's great to know what the crowds think about me, but what do you think about it? Who do you say that I am? And, and this is the question that all of us have to ask ourselves at some point or another. What are you going to do with Jesus? You've got to make a, a determination as to who you believe Jesus is. So he brings a very personal question. I've heard what the crowds think, but the most critical question is what do you think? All of us have to ask ourselves this question. Who, who do we say that Jesus is? It doesn't really matter what your mama thinks. It doesn't matter what your friends think. Who do you say that he is? And as we can imagine, Peter's the first one to speak up. Look at what Peter says. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Peter says, you're not just supernatural. You're the Christ. By saying Christ, he's identifying Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. This is very clearly a messianic term. You are the Messiah. You are God's chosen means of salvation. You are the one that the Old Testament prophets longed for. You're not just one of the prophets. You are the prophet that they pointed us all to. You're the perfect lamb of God who dies for the sins of the world. So he sees, he recognizes Jesus as God's only means of salvation. And you're the son of the living God. You're not just another in individual. You are God himself come for our salvation. 
Now, we might look at that and say that's a pretty reasonable conclusion. We have the advantage of looking back through the cross and through the resurrection and history, and we can look at this, and we think, well, surely you'd come with it. Jesus has done some amazing things. He's performed miracles over demons, disease, even brought people back from the dead. He's forgiven sins. He's called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. We say, well, this is a reasonable explanation. But quite honestly, can I tell you, I think the disciples, the rest of the disciples who are around, the more I think about this, I think they were probably wondering, Peter, where in the world did you come up with that? How do you jump to that conclusion? So the question is, how did, how did Peter come up with this idea of Jesus not just being supernatural, but being divine, and not just being divine, but being God's only means of salvation? Well, look at verse 17, Jesus tells us. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says to Peter, you didn't come up with this on your own. This is not a product of your own intelligence. This is not a product of your IQ. It's not a product of your investigative skills. This is not something you thought your way into. It's not because you were smarter than everybody else. No, he says, this is something that God revealed to you. That God divinely opened up your eyes so that you could see me in all of my glory as Christ, as the son of the living God. You didn't come up with this on your own. And folks, what we got to understand is that for any person to come to the recognition that Jesus is the Christ, that he's God's only means of salvation, that's not something a person can think their way into. It's something that God has to reveal to them. You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel in the glory of Jesus Christ. So spiritually speaking, prior to salvation, all of us were spiritually blind to the reality of who Christ was. But at some point or another, God spoke into our heart. He shined the light of his gospel, as Paul would go on to say, and he revealed to us not only the depth of our own sin, but he revealed to us the beauty of our Savior Jesus, and we ran to him. That's salvation. Because I want to be very clear about what salvation is, because we see it right here. Salvation is not joining a church. Salvation is not walking the aisle. Salvation is not getting dunked in a pool. Salvation is not completing a class. Salvation is not having all the right answers or checking the correct box. Salvation is a moment in time when you knew you were a sinner and Jesus was your only means of salvation, and it wasn't something you produced. It was something God did in your heart. And so I think it would be wise for us to stop right here and just ask all of ourselves this question, have you had a moment like that? I'm not asking, again, I'm not asking if you join a church. And I'm not asking you a specific date and time, but what I am asking you is you look back over your life, can you recall a moment where you came to a deep understanding that you were a sinner and Jesus was your only means of salvation. And if you did, it was because God revealed it to you. You might have had a whole lot of knowledge. You might have done a lot of investigation on who Jesus was, but it wasn't your knowledge that saved you. It was God who saved you. And you might have had no knowledge and didn't know what you were doing, but God showed up in your life and he revealed Jesus to you and you trusted him. That's salvation. So right here, God is divinely revealed who Jesus is, and Peter has recognized him. Well, then look at verse 18, because it continues on, and he says, I say to you that you are Peter, 
And upon this rock, I will build my church. You are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, this is absolutely critical because Jesus is not only establishing salvation, at this point, he's establishing the church. This is the first mention of the church. So here we have the church, and he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. So whatever this rock is, it's really important because it's the foundation of the church. And what we believe is that this rock is not talking about Peter. He's not saying that Peter is going to become the foundation of the church. Why don't we believe that? Well, first of all, Peter didn't recognize himself as being put in that position. Jesus in no other place gives us indication that Peter is in that position. In fact, right after this, he's going to call Peter Satan. It's a pretty good indicator you're not on the right track. Although it's, he's, not, he's not Satan, but he's certainly acting in accordance with Satan in that moment. But later on, the disciples will get an argument over who's the greatest. Do you remember that? And if Jesus was designating Peter as the authority and the foundation of the church, don't you think he would have stopped the guys and said, hey, quit the arguing. You guys remember I designated Pete in that role. He's got that deal. But he doesn't do that, does he? No. Peter will deny Christ. He'll have to be restored. We get over into Acts. Acts chapter 10. Peter will recognize the, the conversion of the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and Cornelius. Does Peter at that moment just make a divine declaration? All right, Gentiles are in. This is the way we're going to do it. No, what does he do? He goes to the church. He goes to the leadership of the church. He presents it to them. They pray about it and they make a declaration. And when the church makes a declaration, does Peter make it? No, James does. And in fact, later, Paul will rebuke Peter for his hypocrisy towards the Gentiles. So Jesus didn't recognize Peter in that position of authority. Peter didn't recognize himself in that position of authority because he never asserted it. James didn't recognize it. The early church didn't recognize it. Well, enough about that. It's not about what we don't believe. The important issue is what do we believe this, this rock is? Because that's the most important thing. What is this rock? If it's not Peter, what is the foundation of the church? What Jesus is referring to here is the confession that Peter just made, that Jesus is the Christ. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ and an understanding that he's not just an ordinary individual. He's the son of God and he's God's only means of salvation. That's the foundation of the church. In fact, Peter will later say in Peter's epistle, what will he say? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the very cornerstone. Paul will say there's no other foundation except that which has been laid in Jesus Christ. Christ is the foundation of the church. And a correct understanding that he is God and he is God's only means of salvation. Whenever the church gets to a place of diminishing Christ crucified as the son of God for the sins of man, we have crumbled the foundation of what God has established. He's the foundation of the church. He's the unity of the church. What draws us all together, this is a new day. It's not about Jew or, or Greek anymore, Jew or Gentile anymore. What unites them is a common understanding that Jesus is the Christ. That in Christ there'll be neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. He's the foundation. He's the unity. He's the entrance. How do you get into the body of church, uh, the Christ? How do you get into the church? You recognize Christ as Lord. There's one prerequisite into the family of God, and it's the recognition that Jesus Christ and Christ alone is my only means of salvation. So Jesus and a clear understanding that he is God and he's our only means of salvation becomes the foundation 
of the church. It's not any other sinful man. It is Christ alone. And then he goes on, and the gates of Hades will not power overpower it. Now, what does this mean? First of all, he says, I'm going to build my, I'm going to build my church. Meaning, <laughs> what God starts, he always finishes. You can write it down and you can take it to the bank. He's going to build his church. Isn't it good to know that we are a part of a team and involved in a mission that cannot be stopped and will succeed? I'm going to build my church. And then he says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, will not overpower it. Now, what does he mean by that? Gates are not intended to conquer. Gates are intended to contain. And you need to know this this morning. Prior to faith in Christ, or if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you are enslaved to sin, Satan, and death. You are held captive in your sin. And do you know what Satan wants to do? He wants to keep you right there. But you remember what Jesus said? He said, I'm the one who's come into the strong man's house and I bound him. Meaning Satan might be strong, but I'm stronger. And in his life, death, and resurrection, he will bust the gates wide open and he will set the prisoners free. Meaning there's no one that Christ can't save. That Christ can save anyone he so desires to save. As he will say in John, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. And he who comes to me, I'll certainly not cast out, but I will raise him up on the last day. That Satan cannot stop me from building my church and saving those that God has given to me. And then he moves on. He says, not only will I build the church and gates of Hades will not overpower it. In verse 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that Peter gets to decide who gets into heaven and who goes to hell? No, that's not what this means. What this means is he's giving them the keys. The key is an access that Peter and the apostles will now have the privilege of going out to the world and telling them that you can now come and the key is Jesus. It's not your genealogy. It's not your background. It's not your race or your ethnicity. It's, it's your confession of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Whoever uh, believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That they get the privilege. We get the privilege. Isn't this amazing? We go out to a lost and dying world that's held captive to sin, Satan, and death. And we get to tell them there's a way now to freedom and life and hope. And it's found in Jesus Christ. So he says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does this mean? Well, this is not God rubber stamping Peter's decisions. That's not at all what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is that now the apostles and the church have the ability and the responsibility to speak authoritatively into the issues of life and faith. The, meaning that we can speak into an issue and say, thus saith the Lord. In their day, they would go to a rabbi and they would go to the rabbi and they would have some issue and they'd bring the issue to a rabbi and they would say, uh, I, I need a ruling. And, and the rabbi would either bind them and say, nope, can't do that. According to God's word, can't do that. Or he would say, I, I lose you, you, you can go, that, that's okay. And what Jesus is saying to Peter and the apostles and to the church is that now when it comes to the issues of life, 
It's not our ruling, but we can speak authoritatively on the basis of God's word and say that is wrong. That is sin. That we don't do that. In this area, God gives us liberty. Over here, we don't do that. And we don't tamper with God's word and and, and we don't make up the rules as we go along. But on the basis of God's word as a church and his people, we have the ability not to say, well, we don't know on that issue. But we have the ability to say no on that issue. We say, no, sir, we will not go down that road because that is wrong and God has spoken. So he says, you have now the the ability to speak authoritatively on the issues of life. And then in verse 20, then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he's the Christ. Now, this is odd. (laughs) Peter has just said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjo. That's awesome. Great job. Here's the keys. Go out there and speak authoritatively, but don't tell anybody. I mean, it just sounds odd, doesn't it? What's he doing here? Well, what we're going to find out really quickly is that while Peter got the first question right, he doesn't have a full understanding of who Jesus is. He doesn't really get what it means that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. He got lesson one, but we still got to learn lesson two over here. In fact, in Mark's gospel, it's really neat because in Mark's gospel, there's a miracle that occurs before this. In that gospel, you remember, it's the, the miracle of the blind man and Jesus touches him and, and, and the lights come on, but it's fuzzy. You remember that? I see people, but they look like trees. It's not quite clear. And then Jesus touches him a second time and all of a sudden it becomes clear. And here are the disciples and they got the first lesson right and, and it's clear, but it's fuzzy. It's not quite all there. They don't have real complete understanding. And Jesus says, until you get lesson two, don't go out telling anybody. You're just going to confuse everybody on this deal. In fact, you're going to see this over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus is going to say, keep it quiet, keep it quiet, keep it quiet. Do you know the first time, the first time that Jesus will say, I'm going to completely reveal who I am and go tell the world. You know when he's going to do it? It will, it will happen when he's before the Sanhedrin. He has been beaten. He has been whipped. He's got a robe on his back. He has been completely humiliated. And then in the midst of his humility, he'll finally say, you'll remember the Sanhedrin, they're questioning, they're interrogating him. And finally, in exasperation, they say, are you the Christ? Just worn out. Are you the Christ? Do you remember what Jesus said? It is as you say. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He quotes from Daniel chapter 7. And they knew exactly what that meant. That was mean that he's saying very clearly, I'm the Messiah. And they just laid into him. We have no further need of witnesses. But it's not until he's been humbled. At that moment, he says, now go tell the world that I'm the Christ. But not now. They got more to learn. And so, look with me at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, this must have been the most depressing statement the disciples could have heard at this moment. Because they're thinking, Jesus told them, may I bless, I'm the Christ. Um, you got the keys. They're thinking glory. They're thinking land. They're thinking power. They're thinking we're about to kill the Romans. It's going to be a great day. We're going to have a good position. We're going to have some money. We're going to be wealthy. This deal's going to work out really good for us. 
And then Jesus says, I must suffer. And I must be killed. And I don't think they heard another word after that. I don't even think they heard the resurrection part. See, the the disciples had no problem with a Jesus who wore a crown and ruled and reigned. But they had real difficulty with Jesus who bore a cross for our sins. See, they, they, like much of the nation of Israel, had so focused in on Jesus ruling and reigning, the Messiah reigning. They, they were thinking of passages like Isaiah chapter 9, where it says of the Messiah that he'll be called, or the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting God, Father, uh, Prince of Peace. And there'll be no end to the increase of his government or peace, and over the throne of David, he'll reign, reign forever and ever Those are the pictures. They had a Messiah in their mind. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. And they had somehow conveniently forgotten the reminders that before he reigned, he would die. They had conveniently forgotten Isaiah 53. And Jesus reminds them here, listen, the Messiah must suffer. The Messiah must die. The the Messiah must be killed. These are non-negotiables to our faith. Now the question is, could Christ accomplish our salvation apart from the cross? You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? There he prays, Father, if there be any other way to do this deal. And there's nothing but silence from heaven. Why? Because there was no other way. There is no such thing as a crossless Christ. There is no such thing as a crossless salvation. That in order to appease the justice and wrath of God for our salvation, Christ would have to go to a cross and he would have to die for our sins. And then look at verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Always on dangerous ground when you start arguing theology with Jesus. But here's Peter. He just got it all figured out. I'm the one that got it right. Man, I'm a stud. Man, I know this deal. Jesus, stop that. Cut that out. You're not going to the cross. See, Peter had a hard time understanding how a Messiah could die. You're too good. You can't die. Verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, which is always a good indicator you're not on the right track. You are a stumbling block to me. Now, now, Again, he's, he's not saying that Peter is Satan, but he's saying that Peter is acting in accordance with Satan's ways. Because what is Satan's greatest, what is Satan's greatest purpose and ambition? Satan's greatest purpose is to divert Jesus away from the cross. His greatest opposition is to the atonement of Jesus. He's got no problem with, with a Jesus who just helps everybody, but he's got a real problem with Jesus who dies for the sins of the world. And here is Peter working and in step with Satan, which ought to be a good reminder to all of us. Can Satan use even people who have good intentions? 
Let us all beware before we get too upset with Peter on this deal. And Jesus says to Peter, you're a stumbling block to me for you're not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. You see, Peter, Peter wants a self-help Jesus. Peter wants a self-help Jesus. He wants a Jesus who comes to help him accomplish his goals. I want a Jesus who comes down to help me accomplish my dreams and my plans. And listen, there's a lot of people out there that are the same way today. They just want to self-help Jesus. They're just trying to get Jesus to work their side of the street. And if we're not careful, we'll end up preaching to self-help Jesus. We'll say, come next week, we'll give you 10 ways to get a date by Friday. You know, Come next week, we'll give you three ways to build a great bank account. And, and listen, don't get me wrong. Jesus did come to, to make you a better, he can make you a better husband. He'll make you a better father. His way is the best way. But listen, Jesus didn't come to help you accomplish your goals. He came to accomplish the will of God, which was to die for your sins. He didn't come to give you your best life now. He came to die for your sins so you could spend eternity with God forever in heaven. We have to be very careful here. Peter wants to self-help Jesus. Jesus says, that's not why I came. You're You're setting your mind on your own comfort, your own plan. So there's a clarification Look at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now this is revolutionary because Jesus is saying to Peter, not only am I going to die, and I think Jesus, who is sovereign, I think he could look ahead and he knows what's going to happen to Peter. Not only am I going to die, but you're going to die. And not only am I going to die and you're going to die, but anyone who wishes to come after me is going to have to die also. Now, for the vast majority of church history, and in fact, most believers around the world today, I think they read this verse and they got no problem with it. I think most believers around the world and most believers in church history read this and understand if I'm going to follow Jesus, there's a good chance I'm going to be persecuted and I'm probably going to die. We have missionary partners in, in Asia right now, in two regions of Asia. We've got missionary partners in Africa today that listen to me. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ that know that if I trust Jesus and I decide to follow him, there's a good chance I'm going to die or one of my family members is going to die. But we have a hard time with this, I think. Because I think that we sometimes forget that this idea of religious liberty and religious tolerance, it's a fairly new idea. You're talking about 250 years, basically, where this American experiment is kind of a blip on the map, this this little bright, shining star in the midst of a vast universe of darkness where Christians have been persecuted. And here, we have the blessing of just openly and freely worshiping Jesus. And so we ask ourselves, we come to a text like this and say, what is this? This probably don't apply to me. What does this even mean? But listen to me, here's the principle. The principle is this. We might not all die a martyr's death on a cross. But all of us, if we're going to follow Jesus, have to die to ourselves. I mean, if you're going to come to Christ, you've got to lay down your dreams. 
You gotta lay down your desires. You gotta lay down your plans and say that my life is no longer about me, it's about Jesus. And I'm gonna follow him and I'm gonna lay down my life and I'm gonna follow him regardless of what it means in my life, regardless of whether or not it makes me look different or peculiar or unusual. And listen, would we not all agree we may not suffer persecution in the way that a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ do, but let me tell you something. If you today are going to shout to the rooftops that you love Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and you're gonna make this book the foundation, the guideline of your life, this world's gonna think you're an idiot. And you might just miss out on a job and you might do some things that nobody else does and you might get made fun of and you may be thought of as different and you might miss out on some opportunities. But listen to me, if you're coming to Jesus and you're so worried about what you're going to give up, I would question out whether or not you really understand who Jesus is. What Jesus is saying here is, you got to be willing to die to your own plans, your own dreams, lay them down at the feet of Jesus, and even make decisions from time to time that are personally injurious, that are not directly advantageous to you and your plan, but it accomplishes God's will. That the attitude of your life is to say no to self and sin and your flesh and say yes to Jesus. And sometimes when you do that, it will not work out immediately in a beneficial way in your life. And then look at verses 25 through 26. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Meaning this, lot here, if the accrual of stuff if, if the cruel of stuff and possessions and the pats on the back of little humans, if that stuff is paramount to you, if that's what drives you, you're gonna have a really hard time following Jesus. See, we as Christians, we have different values and we have different priorities. And if we have different values and different priorities, then we're gonna make different decisions and wouldn't it follow that if we're making different decisions, we're probably gonna end up at a different destination. And that is what Jesus is saying here. That you can gain the whole world. You can have the whole world for 30, 40, 50 years and then the lake of fire for an eternity. Or you can lay your life down you can give it all to Christ. And you may suffer, you may look odd, but you'll find real life. You'll find life eternal. And you'll be guaranteed an eternity with Christ. As I was saying, as I couldn't help but think of Jim Elliott when he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, meaning your physical life. Listen, you can't keep it. We're all going to die. And all this stuff, you ain't taking it with you. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose, eternal life with Christ. And then look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. 
meaning we can speak confidently on these issues, that it will turn out well because we know what? We know Christ is coming back. And there will be a recompense that Christ is going to come back again and as assuredly as he came the first time, he's going to come again, but not as the lamb to die, but he will come as the the king to rule and to judge. And right now, it it may look like some folks, wow, they're rejecting Christ. It looks like they're winning. What's going on here? Listen to me. There's going to come a day that they might win a little here, but on that day, they're going to lose in a big way. And there's a lot of us here that we trust in Jesus and we make some sacrifices. And it costs us. And the world might say, boy, they're a bunch of losers. Listen, on that day, we're not losing. Christ is coming back. Now, if you're the disciples at this moment, Jesus has just blown up your theology. (laughs) They're probably saying, Jesus, so you're telling me you're the Christ. You're telling me You're the son of the living God. You're telling me you're the Messiah. Yep, that's what I'm telling you. And you're telling me you're going to die? Yep, that's what I'm telling you. And you're telling me that if I follow you, I'm going to die too? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. And you're telling me all those that we're going to lead to you, they're going to have to die too? That's what I'm telling you. But you're telling me you're coming back, right? You, you, you're coming back. You're going to make it right. Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. And I can't help but wonder where they're not saying, well, Jesus, could you give us a little proof? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot riding on this deal, Jesus. I mean, we're going all in here. Is there any way you could give us a little proof? And I believe that's why he includes verse 28. Look at verse 28. And truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here with, uh, here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In every, every time we see these verses, do you know the very next event that always occurs? What's the very next event? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what's the very next event? It's the transfiguration. These guys, Jesus said, you're going to have to die. I'm coming back. I really am the Messiah. Jesus is going to take three of them, Peter, James, and John, and he's going to take them up on a mountain. And for just a moment, he's going to peel back his humanity. And they're going to see Christ in all of his glory. And God is going to speak from heaven, and he's going to say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Everything he's telling you is true. And as Peter will later say in his epistle, we now have the prophetic word made more certain because we saw it. And it's true. Now, if you want the rest of it, you got to come back next week. All right? But here's the bottom line. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you had a moment where you believed in Jesus? I'm not asking you again if you checked a box or you walked out. I'm asking you, have you had a moment where you believed in all, with all your heart that Christ was your only means of salvation? 
And secondly, if you have, do you understand what it means to follow Christ? Because we don't want to be accused of pulling the whole, whole bait and switch here at LBC. We want to give you the truth. In fact, Jesus, with his disciples, he's going, to talk, he's going to talk so much about death and dying that pretty soon they're all going to start walking away from him. And he'll finally have to turn around the disciples and say, y'all going to leave too? And they're going to say, where else will we go? You alone have the words of life. But we want to be clear, if you're going to follow Christ, there might be some short-term loss. You may have to lay down some things. In fact, we'll just go ahead and tell you, you're going to have to lay it all down. That was the path of Christ. If you're going to follow him, you're going to follow the same path. But know this, in the end, there's glory. It might be short-term loss. I'm going to tell you this. It's long-term gain in a big way. Have you trusted in Christ? No matter what you give up, it will pale in comparison to what you gain in Jesus. As Paul will say, I count all things but rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Do you know Christ today? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that reveals very, very clearly to us who Jesus is. That he is the Christ. And God, I just so happen to believe there's probably more than a few people in this room this morning that, that they don't know you. They've never had one of those moments where they trusted in you with all their heart. They've never had one of those God moments where you opened the eyes of their heart so that they could see their sin. But maybe this morning, maybe right now, Maybe right now they sense you drawing them. And I pray that they would heed the words of the author of Hebrews when he said, if, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. No guarantees of tomorrow, no guarantees you'll be drawing us tomorrow. I pray that they would trust in you. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that every day, we know this, this, this denying ourselves and taking up our cross, it's not a one-time thing. It's an everyday deal where every day we have to commit our lives to you and lay down our lives and say, God, I don't want to follow my dreams and my plans and my will and my desire. I want to follow yours. I want to go where you want me to go, do what you'd have me to do, regardless of what it means, regardless of how odd I may look or how strange it might be. I want you to be Lord because I know your way is best and I know that your way leads to life eternal. God, help us to demonstrate in our own personal lives the beauty and the all-surpassing value of knowing Jesus, that everything, everything pales in comparison to Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way Christ might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We'll have pastors here at the front who would love to talk with you and love to pray with you. Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family. Maybe there's some issue in your life that you would like prayer for. This is your time. Know this morning, you'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.